This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Canadians uh, are watching very closely. Uh, obviously, everyone in China uh, should be allowed to express themselves, uh, should be allowed to uh, you know, share their, um, their perspectives uh, and, uh, indeed, protest. We're going to continue uh, to ensure uh, that China knows we'll stand up for human rights. Well, good afternoon, folks. Welcome to this hour of the program. That was the Prime Minister today commenting on the ongoing protest in China. And something very interesting and important is happening there. So it's noteworthy uh, to hear the prime minister's comments. Uh, certainly China will, I'm sure, use that uh, to, to try to play into their propaganda that there's some foreign agitation going on here. Ironic to hear that from China, given what we know about their interference in our affairs. But nonetheless, I mean, clearly the Chinese government is, is rattled by this. But the extent to which they're trying to limit coverage of this, prevent news from getting out about these protests and, and trying to crack down on this. And yet the protests continue. So something significant is unfolding in China, and it's worth paying attention to. So joining us to talk about what's going on here, why this is happening, where this all goes from here. Someone who's been watching all of this very closely has been writing about it both in his column today in the National Post and more at his uh, Substack, The Real Story. That's Substack.com. Author, journalist, columnist Terry Glavin joins us on the line here this afternoon. Terry, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Nice to be back. Good to talk to you. Uh, so it was a, a typical kind of answer from the prime minister. I mean, you know, expressing support for the protests. Okay, that, that's that's good. I mean, what what is the right response, first of all, from from the West, from Canada, and other countries at this point? Well, um, there's any number of things that we might do. I mean, in Canada's case, um, you know, we haven't. Uh, we, I mean, China, the People's Republic of China, completely crushed the democracy movement in Hong Kong mm -hmm. completely eviscerated um, any semblance of the rule of law in Hong Kong. Everybody I interviewed when I was in Hong Kong, everybody I met uh, is either in jail, in court, or in exile. Uh, so, you know, I've got a bit of an attitude about this. Uh, China ripped up, a, a, you know, a, a UN-recognized treaty uh, the uh, Sino-British Agreement uh, and destroyed Hong Kong in this way. And Canada hasn't uh, so much as named a single official uh, in uh, either the Magnitsky sanctions law or the SEMA sanctions law. There's nothing. There's nothing. So I think the, the answer to this, these kinds of questions is you do what you can and, and, and at least don't help the other side. Uh, and what's happening uh, in, in China right now, it's interesting. It is massive. It's widespread. It's countrywide. Uh, it's in Chengdu, Nanjing. It's in Beijing, Guangzhou. It's in Wuhan. And I think that's one of the things that makes this event different. Um, but the other thing and the really crucial thing that makes this thing different is that um, the entire this massive infrastructure that xi jinping has built up um to you know maintain the great firewall of china they can't keep up they cannot keep up with uh with with what people are doing and with what people are saying what people are posting on weibo and uh and so on the you know, they've got the Central Cyberspace Affairs Commission, the Internet Security Emergency Command Center, the Internet Management Office, yeah. the Illegal and Unhealthy Information Reporting Center, and they just haven't been able to get up, uh, catch up and keep up. And so all of this, you know, this information is getting from city to city in China, and it's also blowing in these live streams are uh, underneath the great rampart of the great Chinese firewall that that Xi Jinping has constructed. I think that's the really big thing that makes this so different from what's what's happened in the past. It's uh, it goes back a ways. Actually, um, the China Descent Monitor has logged 636 offline 
protests and events, some of them involving thousands of people. 636 in the four months leading up to the current excitements. So it's this, the, the thing is the story's getting out now. And I think that's probably the, the thing that distinguishes it the most. So let's take a step back and talk about what precipitated this. I mean, it, it's clearly uh, um, a reaction to China's zero COVID policy, which has been yeah. very onerous and, and oppressive. So, so that's definitely a catalyst here. But we're seeing, you know, criticism of the CCP, criticism of President Xi himself. So I think maybe at some level it is also about more, isn't it? Oh, my goodness, yes. Uh, I would say, I mean, the thing is, you have to remember those poor people for three years, they've been putting up with it. And, and, you know, they're incredibly tolerant and they're patriots. And they have, uh, you know, the Chinese, generally speaking, have been willing to undergo an enormous amount of sacrifice uh, to try to get COVID under control. And most Chinese, I don't know that most Chinese actually oppose, you know, as a principle, this sort of ridiculous zero COVID policy. I think they're starting to realize, and they have been for some months now, that uh, the state is using these um, these mass sort of crowd control, opinion manipulation uh, tools and technologies to test how far it can go uh, to insinuate itself into the lives of ordinary people. Yeah. And they're wising up to this. And they're, you know, and, and it's funny, like, well, it's not funny, but Xi Jinping has kind of put himself in this box because he won't allow any proper vaccines right. in China. And so, you know, now, now there's this Omicron variant and it's spreading like wildfire in China. They actually, I don't think they've had many deaths lately at all. Um, but, you know, a third of the economy is shut down. Uh, and I think people are, are, are beginning to wise up to it and speak out. And it's really brave when you think about it. You know, there's 372 surveillance cameras for every 1,000 people in China. This is, you know, the offline stuff. Forget about you know, the monitoring of uh, online stuff. And, you know, when, when we're talking about things like Weibo and WeChat, these aren't just things, you know, like Twitter or something. This is, this is how you pay your bills. This is how you get through checkpoints. This is how you uh, get health insurance. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, if, if you give any indication whatsoever that you're not copacetic with government policy, they will use the COVID technology, the, 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 the COVID testing technology, to essentially cut you off, completely eliminate your social credit scores. Right. So they're using technology that was designed to determine whether or not people had been vaccinated and were or were infected. And they're using that technology to track people, hunt people down, knock on people's doors in the middle of the night. And uh, that's what's happening today, by the way, in, in China, is that, uh, you know, all these hundreds of thousands of people who are at demonstrations, uh, they're discovering that, uh, you know, they're being called down to the police station and they're having people show up at their door and they're being disappeared and their accounts are being shut down. So, uh, you know, it really is uh, an exercise in, 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 in the most intensive, intrusive, tyrannical control over, you know, a sixth of the world's population. Yeah. Well, the government's learning, as you say, that, that maybe they can't contain this virus, but... To what extent can they contain this political unrest? Um, I think, you know, I'm not a clairvoyant. I, and, yeah. and, you know, one of, the, <laughs> one of the interesting things about all of these events and, you know, the, the collapse of the Berlin Wall, uh, the democracy movement that led to the massacres in Tiananmen, uh, the Arab Spring um, nobody saw these things coming. It's always in the dead of night, right? It's right. always, you know, as I like to say, a bit dramatically, it, you never know the lash to the back of a slave that will cause him to rise against his master. So, you know, these things are actually very unpredictable. Uh, and, and, you know, the China experts who uh, say, you know, of course we have to be doing business with China and, you know, the people are content and it's a, it's not our system, but it's a way of doing things so, who are we to judge, um, should all have pretty red faces right now. 
um, because Chinese people are like people anywhere. You know, they'll put up with only so much, and then they'll snap. And I think, you know, there, there has been a kind of a social contract in China. You know, people do long for some kind of reasonable democracy. They just want to get on with their lives. Um, but the deal has been, okay, if Xi Jinping can, you know, grow the economy and if there's, you know, if I can imagine that my kid's going to have a better life than, than I've got, then I'm not going to risk arrest and say anything bad about the Communist Party and find myself in jail. And that's basically been the arrangement. And now I think people are realizing, you know, that it's just, you know, they look to the future and it's just this, you know, as George Orwell said, a boot stamping on a human face forever. And uh, they don't like it. And, of course, the proximate cause was the fire in, uh, in Urumqi, uh, the capital of Xinjiang, um, where the, the, the government of China has been reasonably accused of uh, engaging in uh, systemic genocide against the Muslim minority population. It's kind of heartening that, you know, the protest, for instance, on uh, uh, in Shanghai was on Urumqi Street, and there's a lot of solidarity with the Uyghurs that you're seeing in in these things across the country. So who knows? I mean, I'm, I've always been an optimist, and I think you know we should keep a good thought. But I also think we should we really have to you know stop the pretense that Canada has done any kind of significant U-turn right. on China. There's no evidence for that at all. It's an empty box. Unfortunately, I think that's true. We'll leave it there for now, Terry. As mentioned, your latest, it's up at nationalpost.com and uh, much more as well at uh, your Substack. It's therealstory.substack.com. Always a pleasure, Terry. Appreciate the insight. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Yeah, nice talking to you, Rob. Likewise, all the best. Uh, that's uh, author, journalist, columnist Terry Glavin. So some interesting points about what's going on in China. So certainly echoes of 1989 and the democracy movement, but that was brutally put down as we recall, by the Chinese government. And does this movement, such as it is, uh, is, is a similar fate awaiting it? So there, there's, there's a real kind of fork in the road here for China and, and for the president, uh, Xi, in particular, in terms of how they respond to this. And, of course, the, the COVID factor as well. You know, COVID is starting to get loose in China, and they're ill-prepared for it. So do you try to press ahead with this um, elaborate and oppressive zero-COVID strategy? And does that then foster more discontent? China's uh, eased up on some of these measures, but it hasn't made the protests go away. So what's the bigger concern? What's the bigger threat as China sees it, the virus or the unrest? And do you end up with both happening simultaneously? So it does present a, a real threat to China's leadership. Protesters chanted freedom, and we don't want revolution, we want reform. We don't want a leader, we want votes. The demonstration comes after people around China took to the streets in anger at the government's strict COVID policy that has confined millions to their homes. The rallies throughout the mainland prompted the government to ease some restrictions. Nevertheless, police were out in force the day after the protests. One of the Hong Kong protests took place at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, where about 50 students lit some candles in memory of those who died in the Urumqi fire days earlier. They also sang a protest anthem which harked back to their anti-government protests in 2019. Protests in Hong Kong have become less frequent under rules imposed to crush a pro-democracy movement in the territory. I'm Karen Chamas. So welcome to this hour of the program, folks. It is quite remarkable to see some of these images emerging from China, uh, these these protests, which are very rare and, and clearly quite risky. But obviously, the frustration is starting to boil over when it comes to China's hardline COVID zero policies. And residents in a number of, of cities are, are starting to push back. Now, where does all of this go? China's government has eased some restrictions, but reaffirmed the strategy. So the zero COVID strategy is not going away. And certainly the Chinese government, I think, has the wherewithal, not to mention the will, to, to crush this, this movement such as it is. But at the same time, I mean, China is seeing a surge in COVID restrictions. So all of this has made the markets pretty jittery. 
but I think it's something important to pay attention to. We haven't seen anything like this uh, going all the way back to uh, Tiananmen Square, 1989. Now, in the meantime, uh, Canada has unveiled its uh, long-awaited Indo-Pacific strategy. That's it, trying to counter China's dominance in the region, try to move Canada away from an over-reliance on China. China. But does that actually accomplish any of that? Well, anyway, joining us to talk about these important issues, very pleased to welcome back to the program here this afternoon, Charles Burton, who's a a partner with Charles Burton & Associates, a senior fellow at the McDonnell-Laurier Institute, also a non-resident senior fellow with the European Values Centre for Security Policy and formerly worked at the Canadian Embassy in uh, Beijing. Charles, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Great to speak with you, Rob. Let's start with the protests. Uh, What do you make of this? Because this isn't something we see very often in China, so something serious is happening there. Absolutely. I mean, you know, in in the past, you've seen protests that have been localized. You you know, the factory manager has absconded to Canada with all the money and the workers are left in a difficult situation and protest and eventually get some resolution. This is a protest that's taking place simultaneously in many parts of China. And, you know, it's born out of this incident where people in the city of Urumqi um, were locked into their apartments, and then the apartment building uh, went on fire, and then, you know, they couldn't get out, and the fire brigade couldn't get in because the the compound was uh, was surrounded by gates to prevent um, people from, from accessing it without going through a COVID test. So, you know, about 10 people tragically died under these awful circumstances. And I think it's just caused people in China to think, like, what is going on here when the government imprisons people in their homes for very long periods of time? And there seems to be no end to it. And they can see that in other countries, you know, life is going on more or less normally. Right. So. You know, people are spending like up to 100 days locked into their apartments with difficulty obtaining enough food and uh, and losing income. But for a lot of people who can't get out to work, they can't make any money. And I think there's a general attitude that the Chinese government is just not working for for the aspirations for freedom and and the, the right to, to choose your own path and be free of unbelievably strong surveillance and repression. And uh, the, the, the demonstrations are taking on the cast of the Communist Party's got to go, along with Mr. Right. Xi Jinping, the party general secretary, who is the author of the COVID zero scheme. Well, President uh, Xi has just, you know, really strengthened his hold on power, really centralized uh, power. So there's no serious challenge to his leadership. And we've seen before the willingness by the Chinese government to put down protests. This seems to be something bigger. But uh, do, do you see it meeting a, a similar fate here? Well, I mean, certainly the, you know, the reflex position of this kind of regime is to put it down through violence, you know, sending in the riot police and the and the people with guns and, if necessary, like in Tiananmen, tanks. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if, you know, if he cracks down too hard, this will bring more people into the movement to oppose the existing government. You know, like, sure, he's now the kind of Stalin emperor for life, but... Aside from himself and his cronies, who decided that that was a good idea? I don't think anybody in China thought it was um, desirable to have this man um, in power, you know, permanently. And um, and I think if he so if he cracks down too much, he'll get more and more opposition. If he cracks down too little, then you get the development of an underground anti-party movement, like we've seen historically in Poland and and Czechoslovakia. So he's really stuck between a rock and a hard place. Um, and, I, I, you know, it's hard to say how these things will develop. And, you know, political predictions in these kinds of systems uh, typically aren't very reliable. I mean, how many of us recognize that the Soviet Union was about to collapse all those years That's ago? True. But I think we have to take this seriously. I think there's a great deal of discontent in China among ordinary people with the rule of the Chinese Communist Party. And we could see this thing breaking apart. Well, it's interesting to see some, you know, the the propaganda that the Chinese government is trying to push that, you know, it's four nations that are agitating uh, all of this. And, um, you know, it, there was a dilemma here. I think we want to recognize what's happening, offer support to, to those who are, are protesting freely. But I, I don't know, what should the approach from, from countries like Canada be to this right now? Well, as you say, I think we always support the right of people to, to make their political uh, views known in a peaceful way and 
these are peaceful demonstrations. You know, they're holding up blank pieces of paper because, uh, you know, to symbolize that it's impossible to say anything without getting into really deep trouble in in a China that's got so much facial recognition cameras and so much um, uh, ability to to supervise social media through massive supercomputers and artificial intelligence. Um, You know, the main problem in China has been that they don't have adequate vaccines against the new strains of COVID. Mm -hmm. They can't produce mRNA vaccines themselves for God knows what reason. I guess it's a very sophisticated technology. And the government refuses to import Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. And so this, um, you know, locking people away and and extreme quarantine is the only game in town for them to prevent a a huge disaster if COVID spreads through society. And they don't have, you know, the number of ICUs and and, and, uh, facilities to deal with a massive outbreak of COVID. And there's no end to it, right? Like, I mean, where's what's the end game with this? It just seems more lockdowns and more lockdowns and more lockdowns and people not developing herd immunity and people not being able to access the the vaccines. And so, you know, the, where the future lies, I don't know. They can suppress it, the movement, but the underlying discontent is still going to be there. And if you start to see a lot of uh, deaths from a spread of COVID in society, I think you'll see more and more people taking to the streets to to oppose the continuation of this government. Let me get your thoughts on the government's new Indo-Pacific strategy, which was released yesterday. The foreign affairs minister uh, said, quote, we will compete with China when we ought to, and we will cooperate with China when we must. Um, An interesting balance to try to walk here, but how much does this new strategy actually change? I, I think the government is going to keep doing what it's been doing with China. I think there's still, you know, a, a, a split in government between those who feel that the most important thing in Canada-China relations is that we should be getting into the Chinese market with investment and trade and promoting Canadian prosperity, and others who believe that, you know, we should be paying more attention to security issues, Chinese espionage, um, election interference, you know, police stations in Canada to harass people in our country and and so on. And the larger security issue of China's expansion in the Indo-Pacific and the threat to democratic Taiwan and so on. And so, you know, they've got a bit of a mealy mouse characterization of China as what's described an increasingly disruptive global power. But, you know, China really to us is a strategic competitor. And I think we ought to be saying that directly. And this idea that we can keep up the trade relations and deal with China and important international issues like climate change or global poverty initiatives or putting the brakes on North Korea's like terrifyingly dangerous nuclear missiles program um, without appeasing China on the other issues like the Uyghur genocide and human rights and security issues, I don't think it's going to work. I think we're naive in in our understanding of that country and, and the way that Xi Jinping treated our prime minister in Bali, which was very disdainful mm-hmm. and, um, you know, ended with him snorting out a comment. He is very naive as he left is a is an indicator that, you know, the only way we can gain the respect of the Chinese regime is to act more toughly and just stop tolerating their malign activities in Canada and abroad and get more into sync with our like minded allies in terms of serious military Um, contribution to the defense of the Indo-Pacific, a strong statement of our support for Taiwan, and and starting to declare persona non grata the Chinese diplomats who are coordinating harassment and interference and influence operations in our country. You know, uh, if you ask me to write the program, the strategy, I would write it in quite a different way than than this 26-page document that our government has produced. I'm disappointed, but it is a start, and I think we'll be getting a lot of pressure from other countries to to do this even better than they're proposing right now. Well, and, I, you know, I, th- I think at least publicly our, our allies are, you know, saying the right thing. But I think there's a concern that, you know, through all of this, we have frustrated or even alienated not just the Americans but other allies. Is that a, a legitimate concern? Yeah, I mean, you know, when um, Anthony Blinken was in uh, Ottawa last month, um, you know, we then agreed to engage in a, a strategic dialogue with the United States on the Indo-Pacific. So 
clearly the United States feels that there are things that we have to talk about on this. Right. And then, you know, the United States set up this Australia-UK-US security consortium in the Indo-Pacific. Canada's not there. The UK is not really an Indo-Pacific country last time I looked at the map. And, um, you know, we were excluded from this 14-country Indo-Pacific um, economic framework for prosperity scheme, and that's pretty pointed too. So I, th- I think that, uh, you know, our allies have got our number and are telling us that you just can't play both sides of the street with the U.S. and China. And, um, you know, if Canada is not prepared to to take uh, the international action to try and get China back into some kind of compliance with the norms of diplomacy and trade of the international rules-based order and cease trying to undermine the UN and the WTO for their own purposes, that uh, Canada will find itself uh, left out of a lot more things. And we could lose our role in the five eyes if it turns over to three eyes, excluding Canada and New Zealand. Big concern. We'll leave it there for now. Charles Burton, always appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Great to speak with you, Rob. Likewise, all the best. Uh, that is Charles Burton, a former uh, diplomat of the Canadian Embassy in Beijing. He's a senior fellow at the McDonnell-Laurier Institute. So his thoughts on what's happening in China with these protests. And like he says, you know, this is going to be something to keep a close eye on. Because if China comes down too hard, that could backfire. But obviously, if China lets this grow, it could turn into something that, that maybe does pose a real threat to those in power. Of course, uh, Friday was a pretty interesting and significant day as the prime minister took the stand at the public inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act. His decision uh, back on February 14th, it was announced the federal government would invoke the Emergencies Act to deal with the convoy protest in Ottawa and elsewhere. Although the border crossing situations had largely been resolved by that point. So the prime minister laid out uh, his case for why he felt it was necessary to invoke the Emergencies Act. Now, the public inquiry itself has shifted into a new phase this week. Uh, so the public hearings have wrapped up. Uh, Justice Rouleau is, is hearing uh, some expert uh, opinion this week on the public policy phase. Like, for example, uh, does the act itself need to change? What other policy changes might be warranted? But in terms of the central question, why the government invoked the Emergencies Act, and were they justified in doing so? We heard some competing arguments, and ultimately we'll uh, await Justice Rouleau's read on all of this. But I think to the frustration of many, there were some aspects of this that are out of our reach. Specifically, the legal advice that the government says it received that allowed them to interpret the Emergencies Act a little bit differently than it's written. As we now know, CSIS had found that there was not a threat to national security. The Emergencies Act is pretty clear that that's kind of a starting point. So that wasn't met, yet the government proceeded anyway. So joining us to talk about what we learned and maybe what we didn't learn through this process, uh, representing one of the organizations that have been actively involved in challenging the government's use of the act and uh, questioning witnesses during this uh, public inquiry. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Kara Zwiebel, uh, who is a lawyer with the uh, Canadian Centre for, uh, rather the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, their Director of Fundamental Freedoms. Kara, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So it was an interesting process. Obviously, this is the first time the act's been used. So it's the first time we've had a public inquiry of this nature. What, what were your impressions, your takeaways, first of all? Um, yeah, definitely, um, definitely a really interesting process. Um, obviously, there there's a, a lot to try and cover in a relatively short period of time. I think the commission really has its work cut out for it in terms of um, getting the report done in the in the time that it's required to to do that. Um, on the one hand, I think we had, um, you know, a lot more transparency than than we've ever had before. Obviously, we, you know, had the opportunity to hear from and question cabinet ministers. We we got access to a lot of documents that we wouldn't normally uh, get a chance to see. Um, on the other hand, there were some aspects where I think the government was was not as transparent as it could have been. Um, you mentioned, you know, a legal opinion that's that's one issue. Um, there's also questions around, you know, the, the redactions of some of the government documents and whether those were all sort of proper, I think, because of the way in which this was so um, jammed into such a compressed period of time. Not all of those issues were, were dealt with as, um, 
you know, diligently maybe as, as they ideally would be. So, um, so I think it's a bit of a mixed bag, but definitely, you know, some, some things that I think suggest, um, you know, possible ideas about how the act might be amended to right. improve this process. Um, and then, you know, certainly a lot of evidence about, um, about why the government did what it did and, um, you know, why it, why it felt justified in, in doing it. So that central question, I know the CCLA has raised concerns about, you know, serious concerns about the use of the act and whether the government was justified. Did the government make a case for why they were, were justified in using it? Um, you know, I think, I mean, they, they, I think they put forward their, their arguments. I, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I didn't find them um, compelling in terms of, you know, establishing that the legal threshold under the act was met. Um, it, it's clear that they have, a, you know, a, a legal interpretation of what the act requires that that I would say is different from what, you know, the, the act on, on its face says. Um, I think on the face of the act, it's fairly clear that, you know, there has to be a threat to the security of Canada as that term is understood in the CSIS Act. Right. And uh, the government seems to say, well, Yes, it's the same sort of definition, but it, it means something different in this different context. Um, I think that's, you know, interesting and creative, but I don't actually find it persuasive. Well, you know, with regard to the, the point about solicitor-client privilege, the government obviously got some legal advice. Uh, they invoked solicitor-client privilege, you know, to justify not releasing it. But, I mean, they're the client. They They could waive that. Uh, should they have? And, and what do we make of the fact that they didn't? Yeah, it's um, you know I, I think the government's response would probably be that that this is a dangerous road to go down. That there are very good re- and I I mean I agree there are very very good reasons why solicitor client privilege gets the kind of protection that it does. Mm-hmm. It is important for people to be able to consult with their legal counsel, right. um, you know, confident that that is confidential information. It does get tricky and complicated when we're talking about you know, the government, because while it's a legal opinion to the government of Canada, there's also an argument that, you know, that that's information that, that should be accessible to us as uh, those who are, uh, are are part of this country, that that this is what governs us and that, that um, you know, the government is, is taking action in our names. And, and so there there should be more transparency. So I think it's, a, you know, a, a difficult um and, and challenging issue. Ultimately, I think the government, in making its sort of arguments and its submissions to the commission, will lay out what that legal argument is. I mean, we won't know if it's exactly what what was before cabinet or what was given to thesis or you know whatever the case may be. But I think they'll lay out the contours of what that legal argument is, um, and then it will be you know up to the commission to decide really whether that was kind of a reasonable interpretation that that the government was entitled to act on um, or, you know, or, or that it, it wasn't a persuasive uh, or, or correct legal legal opinion. Now, of course, counsel for CCLA, one of the uh, lawyers uh, questioning uh, the prime minister during his testimony on Friday, was there anything about the prime minister's testimony that, that stood out to you in particular? Um. You know, I think that um, there were um, there was certainly uh, a, a sense, and I think you know people can disagree about um, about whether the government was right or wrong to do what they did. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I definitely felt like the prime minister was good at communicating that this was a decision that was taken very seriously. I mean, I think all of the witnesses communicated that fairly fairly clearly that this was something that the government gave real um, careful consideration to and understood, um, you know, not just what what it might mean, but that they would be subjected to a significant scrutiny for, um, for making use of the act. Um, I do ultimately think that, you know, um, the Prime Minister in particular had the, the benefit of all of the witnesses that came before him, um, probably spent a fair bit of time with legal counsel preparing for uh, examination and cross-examination. Um, but, you know, I, I think he, he did well. Um, but but ultimately, you know, that this 
sort of argument that was put forward about this different, slightly different meaning of threats to the security of Canada, I don't, I don't find persuasive. And ultimately, it was actually um, my my co-counsel at the commission who asked the prime minister whether you know the legal threshold, that that level of threat that is required to invoke the act should be higher. Um, or at least as high as the thesis threshold, and he agreed that it should be. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's a you know that's a significant point, and it, it does sort of undermine this alternative legal argument that they've been trying to to make. Well, where does that leave us if indeed Justice Rouleau finds that the government did not meet that threshold? That perhaps then you know the the conclusion here that the Emergencies Act or the use of it wasn't justified. I mean, ultimately, all, all that this process does is. Um, it, is hold the government accountable in a very uh, sort of broad sense. You know, um, it's it's a if the commission comes up with that that finding, that's something that Canadians might consider take take into consideration. Obviously, the next time there's an election, it might be something that they um, that they think about in those terms. Um, it doesn't obviously change other. There's no going back and changing what what happened, changing the fact that the act was used and that the measures were. Invoked, I think it does, um, you know, set the bar even higher for future governments to, you know, to really realize that they're going to have to um, really pinpoint what it is that that triggers or triggered the use of the act. I think here the government had all sorts of justifications. A lot of them were focused on economic concerns, mm-hmm. uh, which is not something that's kind of specifically laid out in the act. So I think, you know, it sends a very strong signal to future governments um, that that they're going to have to look very carefully at, uh, at, at this commission's findings before making use of this act again. Now, there, there's still some outstanding challenges that have been launched against the government's use of the act. What, what impact has this inquiry or could Justice Rouleau's conclusions have uh, on some of those outstanding challenges? Yeah, so we, we do still have an outstanding uh, judicial review of the decision, along with other organizations that have, have sought judicial review. Um, it's not really clear at this point what what implications that will have. The judicial review is really um, supposed to be looking at, uh, you know, the information that was before um, Cabinet when they made the decision. And um, and so it's, it's not clear whether um, it, it will be possible for the, the judge a judge involved in that in those cases to to take into consideration all the evidence that we heard uh, over the course of the commission. Um, so I think there's still there's still some question marks around exactly how that process will proceed. Well, we'll see where this all goes from here. In the meantime, much more at ccla.org, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Kara, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. Uh, Kara Zwiebel is uh, a lawyer with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, director of the Fundamental Freedoms uh, Project. So they were interveners, as mentioned, in this public inquiry. One of their attorneys uh, were among the uh, lawyers questioning of the prime minister during his testimony on Friday. As she mentioned, they're also involved in a legal challenge, uh, which is still ongoing against the government's use of the Emergencies Act. So as she said, I mean, in a way, this is kind of political, an opportunity for uh, a thorough as thorough as it was, a thorough scrutiny of the government's decision. But if they were off the mark, you know, it's, it falls to Canadians to, to hold them accountable. Going through this case, I'll tell you that the only way that this was solved was the advances in science. We're able to use investigative genetic genealogy to narrow down a suspect family. And from there, we're able to narrow down a suspect who is obviously under arrest today. So pretty exciting development yesterday in Toronto. That was Toronto Police Services Detective Sergeant Steve Smith uh, talking about the arrest of a 61-year-old man in connection with an unsolved double homicide or two homicides that took place uh, separately in, in Toronto, the homicides of two women. In 1983, Susan Tice and Aaron Gilmore were both found dead in their respective homes. The cases had been unsolved up until now. And an arrest uh, announced this week of a 61-year-old man. IgG, as it's known, you heard the, uh, the officer refer to investigative genetic genealogy that was used uh, for the breakthrough in this case. It was also relied upon when police made a breakthrough. It was announced a couple of years ago, uh, identifying the killer of nine-year-old Christine Jessup, who had been raped and murdered in 1984. So a lot of excitement around this technology, but 
how much caution needs to be here as well? I mean, I don't know that this is necessarily a panacea when it comes to all of the unsolved murders the police have on their files, but it can clearly be useful in certain cases. Now, this is essentially going through family tree records and, and finding those DNA matches. This was uh, front and center as well in a big case in, in California and a, a serial killer there. So there's a lot of potential here. So I want to better understand what's involved in all of this. And, and again, some of the, the caveats about maybe some of the limitations here. So joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Nicole Navrosky, Assistant Professor in Forensic Geneticist at the University of Toronto. Uh, professor, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much for having me. Happy to be here. Well, I suppose that you know, on the one hand, this is an exciting time. We see this technology being put to use, solving these these cold cases that have haunted you know communities and, and officers for for decades. Let me just get your thoughts on uh, it being put to use once again here. Yeah, of course. So, uh, as you already mentioned, investigative genetic genealogy, forensic genetic genealogy, genetic genealogy—all these terms that we're using. Uh, really came into the spotlight with the Golden State Killer case a few years ago out of California, where investigators utilized this technology for the first time to really solve um, several homicides, sexual assaults, etc. And since then, we've really seen this technology blow up across uh, North America and really globally in terms of solving a variety of cases with a lot of those cases being either missing persons or unidentified human remains or the violent crimes like the homicides, sexual assaults, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And it's really, really interesting because as a forensic community, we are kind of just trying to do the best that we can to solve these cases using this new technology, but also get a handle on the policies and the ethics and uh, the legislation around using a new technology like this. So, um, that's kind of where we're at. We're we're wanting to go forward. We're wanting to, you know, speed ahead and solve as many possible cases as we can. But we're also trying to do that in a way that um, is consistent and standardized and is best serving society in a way that um, we're not wondering, you know, how did the police get the, these investigative leads or how did this happen? We, we're really trying to forge ahead in a way that... Um, maintains the integrity of the public with regard to these new DNA technologies. Mm -hmm. Well, explain how this works. So, we, you know, we have, for example, then a, a cold case where, you know, there's there's a suspect at large, but from, for whatever reason, there is some, some DNA evidence that police have. So what, what's the process then under these new techniques to, to making use of that DNA evidence? So what's really interesting about genetic genealogy is, and what you can see in the media, on the news, et cetera, is that we're solving a lot of cold cases. The reason why we're solving a lot of cold cases with this technology is because the era of forensic DNA typing really only began in the mid-1980s and going into the early 90s in Canada, North America. And so since that time, we've brought online our, our traditional, like, um, short tandem repeat, like our STR DNA profiles, the things that are often seen in court every day nowadays. Um, and that's really blown up and we've developed these criminal databases like CODIS or the National DNA Data Bank housed um, in Ottawa by the RCMP that have allowed us to solve a lot of current um, crime. So mm -hmm. things that are happening since the, the late 80s. But genealogy really has a fundamental role in going back to solving the cases that existed pre-DNA typing, pre-DNA testing, where forensic evidence was ultimately collected, but it just, we didn't process for DNA at that point. And due to backlogs or a variety of reasons, not all of those cases have been since processed using our current technologies. And so when they have um, um, cases that potentially can be solved using these newer investigative leads, and again, remembering that genetic genealogy is an investigative lead. It's a, it's a tool in our toolbox that we can explore to see if it's going to give us any additional information. Right. Not every case is going to be solved by genealogy, but in cases like these 1983 murders where they were linked in 2000 using our new DNA technologies, but again, not having anybody in our criminal databases to 
match to per se, genealogy was an additional option for developing an even um, more informative investigative lead in this case. Mm-hmm. So essentially, we're using the, the DNA to, to find relatives of the suspect. And there are publicly available DNA databases, you know, Ancestry, 23andMe, that people are familiar with. And these are essentially the, the resources that the police are able to tap into. Yes and no. So um, 23andMe, Ancestry.com, those are private companies, and they are not searchable by investigators. What happens is somebody will utilize one of those private companies, download their DNA, and then voluntarily upload it into a public database, nice. something like GEDmatch, like something a lot like what we've seen um, with the Golden State Killer case. And there's a an informed consent component there where individuals are are consenting to the fact that their DNA may be searched against uh, samples from investigators in active investigations. Mm-hmm. And so essentially what's happening is the police are taking a forensic sample, such as the 1983 evidence here. They've generated a DNA profile compatible compatible, pardon me, with one of these public database, or in this case they use Authorm, so Authorm's database, um, for upload, and then the sample was uploaded and compared to everybody else who's in it. And so while you're looking for relatives, really you're just looking for any potential information that might steer you down a potential investigative lead. You don't necessarily know that there are going to be relatives in there. Mm-hmm. You could potentially directly match the, the person of interest if their DNA is already in this database. So it's really just providing you with a new direction to take the case in. And then what comes next is a series of, like you mentioned, that family tree rebuilding. And that's using, again, a lot of public records, such as marriage license, uh, birth records, death records, et cetera, freely available information that genealogists have been using for decades. And ultimately, you know, it, it will involve some kind of old-fashioned detective work, even if you're able to identify potential suspects on a family tree to then be able to, okay, well, was this person living in this area at, at the time of the crime? Could they have possibly been there? You know, that sort of legwork still needs to, to follow, doesn't it? Absolutely. And as was mentioned in this case, the genealogy was able to provide investigators the sufficient next step to get a warrant to then go and collect a new DNA sample, reference sample, which was processed in our our traditional conventional DNA typing methods that would be used in our crime labs in Canada and compared to the evidence DNA profiles that were generated in 2000. So it still went through our validated techniques and the robustness that has always been there. But genetic genealogy in this case just provided that additional investigative lead to get us to that next step to, to further um, kind of explore the missing pieces in that investigation. You mentioned the public consent component and how important that is when it comes to, you know, these these DNA databases. Why, why is that so important? So my personal belief is that forensic science is a discipline that serves society. Forensic scientists are here to help. And the last thing that we want is a technology or a methodology or, or something to happen that causes, you know, public distrust in the forensics that are, are being performed for all of these incredibly important cases that um, utilize forensics. And so because this technology um, can be outsourced to private companies, as a community, we're finding our way right now in terms of legislation, in terms of standardization, in terms of ethics and policy to take our next best steps forward to ensure that we still can maintain that confidence of society. And that's where the consent component comes in. So when somebody uploads their sample into either a private database from some of these private companies and or a public database such as GEDmatch, you have that initial informed consent component that's essentially disclosing to the individual uploading their sample, this is what may be done with your sample once it's uploaded into the database. And that's just to ensure that there is no confusion or um, 
intent, misintent uh, with the searches that are happening. And the Golden State Killer case was a prime example. So lots of people had their samples in GEDmatch prior to the Golden State Killer case. And then after that case, what we saw actually, instead of a decrease where everybody was pulling their samples out due to panic, we actually saw an increase in sample uploads because when people realized, oh my goodness, my DNA sample might be able to solve crime, people just innately are good and and wanted to help. Um, But we did go through a phase where all samples were kicked out of the samples or out of the databases um, and people had to re-opt in to really confirm that um, consent component. Mm -hmm. And let me just ask you, I mean, you know, as much as there's excitement around the potential of of this as an investigative tool and involving this technology and we've seen these high-profile cases, is it also important to temper some of that excitement? I mean, you know, like anything else, I, I, you know, there, there are limitations to, to what this can do. Absolutely. This technology or this approach to investigations is not going to work for everyone. It's very dependent on the forensic evidence. It's very dependent on the individuals in the DNA databases. Um, and it's very dependent on what information the DNA generates um, with regard to the the family trees and what kind of associations can be made. And we've also seen, and not that that's, um, it's still a case closed, but sometimes we're going to get to the end of the trail and the accused or the person of interest may already be deceased. And so that's still a case closed, but I definitely think that as we move forward Um, and we find our way with this technology, we will be able to better triage what cases will truly benefit from the technology. And going back to the particular case at hand, these 1983 murders, Mm -hmm. uh, the samples I believe were initially sent um, to the private company back a couple of years ago. So this isn't something that necessarily happens overnight. This can be a process. um, And we, we have to remember that with any investigation, Sometimes things are slow. Sometimes things move really, really quickly. But ultimately, we're able to solve the crime if we're able to close that case and provide that resolution to a family or to an individual. That's that's the goal of forensic science, and that's really exciting. Yeah, it is. We'll leave it there. Appreciate the insight and in all of this really fascinating conversation, Dr. Navroski. Thanks again for joining us here this afternoon. Thank you. All the best. Nicole Navrosky, as mentioned, assistant professor and forensic geneticist at the University of Toronto. So some some insight on what we mean when we talk about this uh, IgG, investigative genetic uh, genealogy. That's helped crack uh, a couple of high-profile cold cases in Ontario. This uh, double homicide of these two murders from 1983, and then prior to that, a couple of years ago, identifying the killer of nine-year-old Christine Jessup. A horrible case from 1984. So there's a potential to to crack some of these cold cases. It's it's not you know silver bullet in solving all of them, but it's a pretty useful tool as we've seen. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.